I, uh, what's happened here? Well, I need a couple of good stiff drinks. How about you, Angel? You want a drink? <laughs> I... <laughs> GIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. I'm Gary Manson. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We are Manson Mitchell in holiday mode. Glad you are with us. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy Kwanzaa. And I may be, I may be missing one or two. In Festivus for the rest of us. Festivus. Uh, Thank you. Of course. Right. Thank you, bad boy. Benny Mathers at the board. That's what are we you do. a Festivus? Are you a Festivus enthusiast? No, ben? that'd be your uh, Saturday producer, Big Mike. I think that's uh, his area of expertise. So. <laughs> yeah. Spot on. Right. Yeah, right. I told you. <laughs> he leads the Bah Humbug chorus. <laughs> Well, we're here a couple of weeks from Christmas. Good time. Friday the 13th, that doesn't bother us at all. Oh, no, I was born on the 13th. So 13th is a very lucky number. Yes, it is. And of course, you were Sunday the 13th. Friday the 13th, I don't know. Yeah. You, you don't want to be dropped on your head when you're born on Friday the 13th. No. And no. that would take, to avoid that, you need a skilled physician. I wish there were a doctor in the house. Oh, we do have a doctor in the house. Bernie S. Siegel, MD, is a well-known proponent of integrative and holistic approaches to healing that heal not just the body, but also the mind and soul. A retired surgeon and a lover of animals, Dr. Bernie has been at the forefront of spiritual and medical ethics issues of our day and has been named one of the top 20 spiritually influential living people by Watkins Mind Body Spirit magazine in London. His multi-million best-selling first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, was published in 1986. Since then, he has authored many books and audio CDs. His realization that we all need help dealing with difficulties in life, not just the physical ones, has led him to work where he helps people fix their lives. He comes to us from Connecticut, where he lives in a suburb of New Haven, and this is his 10th visit on Manson Mitchell. We are so thrilled to have Dr. Bernie Siegel. How are you today, Dr. Siegel? Oh, I know I'm not supposed to ask you that question. Atta are you girl, ready for the learning. holidays? <laughs> you're well, see, if we were together, you're supposed to say you're looking very well today. But oh, you look great. Talking, you can say, oh, you sound full of energy. So that's oh, you good. sound yeah. wonderful. Yeah, I, I have people... You know, it's part of the fun in life because I walk into a store, uh, there's a grocery store near us, and all the young ladies who are the clerks, how are you today? I said, don't ask that. I'm not going to go over all my troubles. When I come in, you say, you're looking very well today. And the other day I went in, there was a new clerk. How are you today? Don't ask me that. When I come in, <laughs> and all the customers are looking at me like, what's wrong with him? But then she an old-time employee yeah. came out of the back, and she walks into the store and says, oh, you're looking very well today. And the whole store busted out laughing. Um, <laughs> you, you know, but, but you do. You feel good when somebody says that because you know they're a friend and you're laughing together. And, and rather than, how are you? How are you doing? Uh, you know, all the total strangers who meet you and ask you that. So I make them think about what they're saying. You know, laughter is the best medicine, isn't it, Absolutely. Dr. Bernie? 
<laughs> you know, we I act like a child all the time, <clears throat> and uh, we have five children, and when they were younger, I'd say, okay, Mom and I are going out to dinner. You want to come? No. Why wouldn't they come? Because I embarrassed them endlessly. You know, I we'd go to a Chinese restaurant, and they'd come over and say, what would you like? I said, I'd like a pizza. And the kids would go, oh, God, here we go again. But uh, <laughs> so they used to stay home to avoid embarrassment. But two things that happened that were really funny. I went into the pizza restaurant, and I said, it's my Chinese food ready. And they pulled out containers that you get from the Chinese food place when you take it home. And the oh. whole restaurant busts out laughing because the owner got me that day. He had collected these, saved them, waiting for me to come in and ask for my Chinese food. Um, and, you know, it's that kind of fun. And another time uh, in that same restaurant, we were eating with members of the family, and the check was like, you know, $189 for a few meals. I thought, what the hell? The arithmetic is right. So I went over you know, to where the owner is cooking stuff and baking them. And I said, can you look at this? Is this correct? And again, the whole restaurant busted out laughing. He and our daughter had planned to get even with me. So they made out a false check to get me going. <laughs> well, I, but, I believe wait, that. I got to add one last thing. Because as the kids grew up, though, they would come home from school and work. And say, thank you, Dad. I said, what are you thanking me for? I didn't do anything. Oh, yeah. I did something crazy at work today, and I didn't get into any trouble. The only thing I heard people say was, well, you know who his father is? And the same thing at school. The kids didn't get punished because, you know who his father is? It's like, what do you expect him to, you know, them to behave like when they have a father like that? So that's when they began to come home saying, thank you. <laughs> And I always you look say at, to parents, yeah. don't, I mean, embarrass your children regularly. It'll give them freedom. You look at life a little differently. You have a different perspective. Yeah. And, I, and I like how you, you integrate these things holistically between, you know, drawings and having people tell stories right. and having them look at their lives a little bit differently, giving them some insight. Well, I'll tell you something mystical. I, God explained it to me this way. You're, you're a satellite dish, your remote control on the television screen. I said, what are you talking about? There are many channels that you can tune into. So I gave you a mind, like a remote, to pick your channel. In other words, to pick your Lord and then demonstrate what your Lord has taught you. And that's something I've learned. So I try to live the sermon. But I am the television screen so that I don't decide what I say. Now, that may be crazy for you to hear me say, but I have an angel. His name is George. He decides what I say, and I just do the talking. Let me go further so you know this is not me on drugs. Um, years ago, I did a meditation and uh, at, a, at a workshop, and we were told to meet person walking down a path towards you. It'll be your inner guide. And this fellow walked up to me, had rather strange garments on, a big beard, and he said, uh, hi, my name is George. 
that disappointed me because I was waiting for Abraham or Jesus or, you know, Moses, somebody with class that would come along. Uh, so along comes George. And, um, you know, hey, so it's George. Then I noted when I was out speaking, I wasn't, in other words, I had an outline of what I was going to say, but I wasn't paying attention to what was in my outline. At the end of the talk, the first person who came up to me said, I've heard you before. That was better than usual. I said, I know. I, I realized that. The second person came up and said, standing in front of you for the entire lecture was this man, so I drew his picture for you. And it blew my mind away. It was George. She drew, I still, I have the picture she drew hanging on the wall in our house. And another time, I was speaking at a Christian funeral, and the healer, Alga Worrell, was there, because she also knew the man who died. And she came up to me in the hallway as everybody was leaving and said, Bernie, are you Jewish? I said, what are you asking me that for? Because I spoke at a Christian funeral? No, there's a rabbi standing next to you. And it was George. And then I realized why he was dressed as he was, because uh, I didn't understand that when I first met him. But um, it's incredible. So I really don't prepare. If you said to me, I want you to give a lecture tomorrow, fine. I know if I get up, George will take care of it. And I'll just start talking and keep going. The hard part is getting me to stop. You'll see that at the end of the program. Because George always has stories to tell. But it's it, See, I've experienced these things, so my mind is totally open. Matter of fact, my next two books, one is with Hay House called No Beginnings, No Endings, because our, our consciousness never ends. Bodies die, but in a sense, we don't. And the other is about past lives, three men and six lives. Um, and I've had all these things happen, not because I was searching for them. Uh, when I was four years old, I took apart a toy telephone imitating some workmen who were in our house and put the pieces in my mouth because they were holding nails in their mouth. And I aspirated them and was choking to death. One of the most painful ways you can ever die, believe me. Um, and then suddenly I was free of pain and I thought, what's going on? And I realized you're not in the body anymore. Remember, I'm four years old. I'm floating around the bedroom you know, sort of at the ceiling, uh, I'm thinking, I'm seeing, uh, it, it, you know, I didn't know that this wasn't something everybody knew happened when you died. So I didn't, you know, talk about it when I didn't die because I thought, well, everybody knows about this. Um, but there I was thinking, wow, my parents are going to find me dead, but this feels so good. And it's so interesting and exciting. I prefer being dead. Then the body on the bed vomited. And I'm sure it was George doing a Heimlich maneuver because I wasn't <laughs> supposed to be dead at that peak. And out came all the pieces of boy. And the boy on the bed started breathing. And I was back in the body again. And the first words out of my mouth, I never forget this, were, who did that? Because I had decided to be dead, and look, I'm not. But it gave me a, a feeling about a God. In other words, that there's somebody else who's in charge of the schedule, not me. 
Um, and and let me tell you, I mean, I know other people have written when their children had a near-death experience, but when my mother came into the room with vomit and pieces of toy all over the bed, she wasn't into anything interesting happened here. Uh, you know, she was just shrieking and, uh, you know, glad that I was alive <laughs> and breathing. But the thing I always noticed as I grew up telling people that story was I never said I was dying. You know, once I left my body, I didn't say I looked down at myself on the bed. I looked, I would say I looked at the boy on the bed or the body on the bed. And I realized, why don't you refer to it as you? And the feeling and answer I got was because I'm not my body. You know, that's given to us so we can perform and do things, but it isn't us. We are the consciousness, the spirit, the soul. I don't care what word you use. Yeah, the other day a three-year-old was playing a violin with a concert orchestra. Now, you tell me how you can train a three-year-old to do that. He has a violinist in him. See, that's who's playing the violin. And... um I know in my past life, which, again, I didn't go to a therapist or a psychiatrist. A friend of mine learned how busy I was and said, why are you living this life over the telephone? I went into a trance, and I won't get into the bloody details, but I saw myself as a knife killing people. Why? Because I didn't have faith in my Lord. When I was asked to kill now, use this as an example. Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his child. And it always disturbed me until I had my experience. Why didn't Abraham say to God, please, leave the kid alone. Take my life. You know, or debate with God. Why do you want to sacrifice his child? He went to do it knowing, and I mean this, knowing that he wouldn't have to. If he had faith, something would work out, and it did. And even in the Bible, when I was reading it, it impressed me. He says to his, you know, assistants who come along to help him, um, we'll be back, you know, in a few minutes. And I thought, that's interesting. Why didn't he say, I'll be back in a few minutes if he's going to sacrifice his child? And I always say, I always had the same feeling about Jesus. My approach, because of my sense of humor, would have been to jump off the cross and say to people, now do you see what I can accomplish? So pay attention to me. But if you have the faith, you know that things will be accomplished because you're following your Lord, who you have faith in. And so whether you're asked to kill or sacrifice, um, you know it's going to be the right thing and for the greater good and it's not just a personal event so my life as I say has been amazing and believe me I went to get therapy after I had the past life experience because it was a bloody horrible uh, event but it also taught me like you mentioned about animals like our house was a zoo one of my books is love animals and miracles uh, yep and and I realized all these things made sense because I didn't just kill people. There were times I would kill their dogs, you know, 
so it wouldn't attack me or other animals. And I remember as a child always saying to my parents, I want a dog. Um, and you say, well, why are you saying that when you're a little kid? Um, but I know it was part of my consciousness, all the things from the past that were in me and making me want to, in a sense, make up for all the damage I did. Because our house was a zoo. <laughs> well, it also inter interesting that you saw yourself as a knight killing people oh, yeah. when this lifetime is about keeping people alive, yeah, about healing them. Yeah, that's exactly why I realized I became a surgeon. Um, because I was asked to kill a neighbor's these are, you know, living in castles. Uh, this is 200 years ago. I'm sure it happened in Ireland. Um, and I was asked to kill the neighbor's daughter because of him, mis, uh, you know, treating the property and land and all kinds. And I said, why don't I kill him? No, I want you to kill her. I said, what if I don't? I'll kill you. Then I went and killed her. And then I realized when I went for therapy, after I had that experience of crying for hours, uh, James Tillman, the Jungian therapist, said to me, Bernie, you hear what you're saying? What do you mean what I'm saying? You keep saying my Lord. I said, yeah, it was the Lord of the castle. No, Bernie, it's your Lord. You have to go home and relive this. And that's when the Abraham and the Jesus stuff really hit home for me. Um, because when I would say yes to my Lord, then... All right, I know I have faith in you, and what I want you to do is bring the people and let us resolve the situation. And the resolution, which ultimately happened in this life, was I married the young lady that was his daughter, and uh, oh. there was no more fighting because we were one family now, and what they were fighting over, which was land, was given right. to us as a wedding present. So now everything was fine. And I, I love I, I that. Said yes. Well, nothing, you know, no lives would have been lost. Uh, yeah. But we all have to think about who's your Lord. You know, is it a true Lord? Is it money? Is it power? What is it? Um, you know, I don't want to get into politics. If look at what goes on in the world, um, and they always say, what if Gandhi was our president? Oh, boy, wouldn't it be nice? He would be busy trying to help everybody. And the worse off you were, the more he'd be doing for you. Uh, you know, versus thinking of himself. Uh, right. Or having power. I've got a and, medical question for you, Dr. Bernie. Um, having spent your life uh, in a hospital and doing surgery, I know that you approach that from a very different way when you're looking at, at the whole person and you're treating not just what is going on with them physically, but also emotionally and spiritually. But what have what did you find with regard to people holding various memories in their different body parts? Well, oh boy. Um let me just say this, first of all, see, for some people, treatment could be the devil giving them poison, chemotherapy. The operating room could be a black box and you're lying there all alone. 
when I see those things, I say to people, don't go do that. But if they say, well, I want to go ahead, then I said, then you have to change your image. So picture yourself receiving treatment, going into surgery, uh, everything going beautifully, and you wake up and you feel great and you go home and everything's fine. Then a week later, they draw this wonderful picture and they don't have problems. And I don't make up any of these things that I say. Nurses would say to me, your patients are a problem. I said, what is it? They refuse pain medication. I said, did it ever occur to you they're not hurting? And they'd look at me like, I'm insane. You just operated on them. Major surgery. And they're not hurting? No, they weren't. Because it was the right thing for them. And uh, if you have a sense of humor, i got to tell you one that really in my family my mother-in-law, in her 80s, developed a hernia because her husband was had a spinal cord injury and became paralyzed, so lifting him and moving him. And and he lived to be 98, by the way. What a wonderful wow. guy. Um, but anyway, she developed a hernia, so I take her to the hospital to fix it as an outpatient. Um, and we're using regional-type anesthesia, so she's awake. And I'm talking to her. And I would play music in the operating room, too, to make it a different environment. But I thought to myself, because um, she's a very proper lady. She's been an opera singer. If you hit the wrong note, I mean, she would be very embarrassed. But I was thinking, what can I do to embarrass her so she will have no pain and recover, you know, quickly? And then it occurred to me, just as we're finishing, I bellow out at the top of my voice uh, for everybody in the operating room to hear. Now remember what I've told you, no sex for six weeks after surgery. Well, they then take her to the recovery room, and I went and got dressed and went out to see how she was doing. And I walk into the recovery room, and I can't find her. I said, where's my mother-in-law? They brought her in here. She grabbed her clothes, got dressed, and went home. And <laughs> I knew what I had done worked beautifully. You see, but so again, with people, uh, yeah, sometimes people would hear Frank Sinatra singing, why not take all of me while I'm operating, you know, playing music and um, or Amazing Grace. And they'd laugh and say, hey, is everything okay?" But it changed the atmosphere of the operating room. So it became a place to go and be healed, not a place to go and be wounded or cut up. you know, I empowered them to do what was right for them and then create a healing environment. And I can tell you, see, what changed people, you walk in with a tape recorder years ago and they were yelling at me, you're an explosion hazard. We have explosive gases here for anesthesia. You can't play an electrical appliance. I would plug it in before they, you know, started the anesthetic, start the music. And within a couple of weeks, nobody said I was an explosion hazard anymore. And all the other operating rooms, people were bringing in tape recorders to play music for the patients. Because I always say, if something works, you don't have to fight with people or deny it. So I'm a storyteller, as you can tell. Because I'm not giving you statistics about if you play music or you have an outdoor scene on the wall in your hospital room. I'm not going to argue about that with some doctor who says, oh, that can't be true or that doesn't make sense. I tell a story about a patient, and that opens their mind. 
It doesn't confront their belief, but if a story shows up in their practice, then they say, hey, I got a story for you. And then we're friends believing in the same thing, whereas before that, that was a poorly controlled study. That's not a good medical journal, blah, blah, blah. But again, one more, you know, if you have a question. Um, when I sent articles to medical journals, this is the part that really disturbed me about how medicine treats people. Uh, it came back saying, it's interesting, but it's not appropriate. That was a standard medical journal. Um, so I sent it to a psychiatric journal. It came back saying, it's appropriate, but it isn't interesting. We know all this. That's the sad part. You go to a doctor, and, and well, as Jung put it, the diagnosis helps the doctor, but doesn't help the patient. But there, the key thing is story. For it alone shows human background and human suffering. And only at that point can the doctor's therapy begin to operate. So you go into the doctor, what's wrong? Here's a pill. I mean, I, I have written, and I don't, I gave up, to the drug companies with this ad. I was depressed. I went to see my doctor. He prescribed an antidepressant. I feel better now. I wrote them, I said, excuse me, my house burned down, my family died. Don't you think the doctor ought to know that and not just say, here's a pill? Don't you think you ought to say, why are you depressed? What's going on in your life? And they literally, I never get an answer to those letters. Uh, the only time I got an answer from an insurance company was when I was talking to a lady who was abusing herself by having surgery of some kind every few months. When I looked at her chart and she came into my office, I said, I'm not going to operate on you. You're doing this to punish yourself. You want me to help you? Come in. We'll talk. We'll resolve this. And she looked at me with that, oh, you're a smart ass. How did you know? And she kept coming, and we were talking. And she was, you know, basically psychotherapy, but she was getting better. And then the insurance company wrote me a letter. We do not pay surgeons for talking. <laughs> so I wrote them back. I said, take a look at her chart, how much money you've paid her in the last six months versus the year before. And you'll see that what she's doing is self-punishment. And by talking to her, I've stopped that. And I've saved you a lot of money. And then I got another letter. Keep talking. <laughs> Perfect. We'll keep talking, too, on the other side of a short break here. Dr. Bernie Siegel is our honored guest. Always pleased to talk to Dr. Bernie. We're going to have some questions for him. Uh, I'd like to know a bit more about procedure and about his experiences there with one thing in particular that's always mystified me. But we'll get to that after we've gone away for just a couple of minutes. This is Manson Mitchell. Dr. Bernie Siegel is our guest, and we are right here at the epicenter of Seattle's very home alternative talk at Christmas time, at holiday time, no less. And we're glad you're with us under the mistletoe at AM 1150. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. 
Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world-famed, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message sponsored by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. We're a couple of baby boomers who bring you a talk radio mix of metaphysics and music, politics, and pop culture. And you never know which celebrity will join us for an interesting conversation. Mance and Mitchell is Boomer HQ, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on 1150 AM KKNW. Your home for alternative talk in Seattle and Western Washington. Talk radio with a purpose. Alternative Talk 1150. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell. Happy holidays, no matter how you celebrate them or whether or not you celebrate them. We're here in celebratory mode talking to Dr. Bernie Siegel, and it's always a pleasure to have him with us. We have the marketing piece, as we like to call it. Holidays, we're actually going to get into marketing and merchandising at holiday time. It's unseemly, and yet we'll pursue it for the sake of Dr. Bernie and all those who hold him dear. If people want to get in touch with you, Dr. Bernie Siegel, what's your latest book? What's the latest program? People want to get up close and personal with you, so where will they find you? Well, my website is www.berniesiegelmd.com. And uh, all my books will be listed there. Matter of fact, um, you can buy them through a store called Wisdom of the Ages. It's run by a uh, family and the grandson, uh, who's an incredible young man. Um, he's, he and I have written a book. It's another one that's going to come out soon. Um, and, it, and new for the year, as I said, was uh, uh, two. Uh, one, no endings, no beginnings. And three, man, six lives. But all the other books, it, it, it's not, I mean, there's practical books uh, about how to deal with the troubles of life. And on the other hand, there's also a book of miracles, because there are things that happen you can't explain in a traditional way. So we ask people to share things that have happened. Um, let me, I mean, briefly, you go to bed at night, a woman appears in your dream, dark skin and an accent, says you have a lump in your right breast, you need a check. Lady wakes up, feels it, goes to the hospital. They diagnose her with breast cancer. And they tell her your doctor, who's going to be in charge of your 
treatment is coming in in a minute. Who walks in? The woman from the dream. The doctor from India who's practicing here. That's um, great. I, you know, I could go on and on with stories. But that's what changes people, see, when a story happens in their life. I always remember at the hospital, we had a blind patient, diabetic, lost his sight. He had a cardiac arrest. Uh, they brought him back, and he said to his wife and the doctor, oh, boy, I was out of my body. I was watching everything happen. The wife said, oh, stop it. All that is crazy stuff. He said, honey, you have a green dress on, and you were sitting in the corner of the room to get out of the way and tell the doctor his pen is under the bed. It fell out of his pocket. Boom. Who can deny <laughs> what he just told them, you know? Uh, and here's a blind man. So when people are not afraid to share, you know, they're not afraid to be called crazy. It doesn't make sense. How could that happen? They share it, and that opens people's minds. And the other part, I always say read fiction if you want to know the truth. Now, why would I say that? Uh, because the fiction writers see the world and write about it. Like my book, Three Men, Six, Six Lives, yeah, I'm not giving the names of the people who had those experiences, the one of which was me. So I create three characters, but they're telling the truth. And that's why I say look at fiction. Solzhenitsyn woke me up many years ago uh, knowing the truth in his book, Cancer Ward. One of the men comes in and says, oh, it says here in this book I found in the hospital library, there are cases of self-induced healing. You never hear those terms from a doctor. See? You get well when you're not supposed to, and the doctor says, well, you had a spontaneous remission. Hey, stupid, why don't you ask the patient, how come you didn't die when you were supposed to? <laughs> and then they tell you a story yeah. about the change in their life. One of the funniest ones people will enjoy, this fellow who expected to be dead in a couple of months said, I'm going out to Colorado, I want to die in the mountains, it's so beautiful there. I call up a year later to say to the family, why the hell didn't you call me? I told you I wanted to come to the funeral. He answered the phone. And he said, it was so beautiful here, I forgot to die. <laughs> I love that. And I've been to Colorado a few times, yeah. lived there for a very short time. I can see how that would have that kind of effect. And that's something else I was thinking about. I've been to every state, not to mention a lot of foreign countries. But how different the survival is in different states. See? Because when everybody knows you, like in Montana, um, you know, your car breaks down, somebody stops and helps you because they don't know when the next person's going to show up. But if your car, and this has happened to be, breaks down in New York, uh, the cops yell, we'll send somebody, and they don't even check, are you okay, your kid's okay. Right. I mean, in Texas, in the middle of nowhere, a car broke down. I was invited to dinner at the house of the people who stopped, and their brother-in-law is a mechanic, so he'll take the car and fix it. I mean, these are total strangers, but they know I'm in the middle of nowhere, and so they stop to help me. And uh, that's why survival changes depending on the community you're in. So the survival rate for cancer is better in Montana than it is in New York City. Uh, and that has to do with the lifestyle and what's going on around you and the noise and the people. And 
who do you know and don't know and so forth and so on. I love that. You know, that's, that has been my experience as well. That's a, that's a story for another day, but you know, people looking out for one another and a sense of community, even a sparsely community, sparsely populated community can have its share of, of love and concern for the other. And I benefited from that one time during a snowstorm when my car broke down and total strangers, a guy and his wife stopped to help me out. And I said, you don't know me at all. Why are you going to all this trouble for me? And I said, because that's what people do for each other around here. And it was pretty touching. It definitely was. Let me tell I you, wanted to mm-hmm. All right. I know you have a question, but let me just mention relationships because you talked about people. If you have a heart attack and go home to a house with a dog, you have a lower mortality rate at the end of the year than a house with no dog in it. I mean, these are studies that have been done. And yes. people have to understand that. It's relationships. You're changed by your chemistry, literally, in your body is altered by petting a dog. So we know, you know, now that we know genes, we know how genes and your life interact. And if, you know, it's Monday morning, you're more likely to have heart attack, suicide, uh, you know, all kinds of flu and so forth and so on because of how you feel about your work and your life. But if you're enjoying your life and relationships, and men have a tough time with that, I can't work anymore. What's the point of living? That's a quote I hear in the yes. office. Being defined by what we do for a living, yes. Right. And the women, I can't die till you're all married and out of the house. And she was supposed to die in a short time, live for 20 years because she had nine kids. And one family, how I treated them, they came in with their mother who had cancer. She has 12 cats. The house stinks. We don't even visit her. We're going to get rid of the cats so she can have treatment for her cancer. I said, no. They looked at me like, what do you mean, no? I said, you get rid of the cat, your mother's dead. I said, what you will do is go there while she's in the hospital, clean the house, and tell her you can't find anybody who wants 12 cats. Then she can't die. And for years, they would come into my office, all her kids, with big smiles. Thank you. <laughs> Because mama can't die. We've got 12 cats. Right. A reason to live. Right. You know, if you give somebody a why, they'll figure out the how. That's what I've discovered time and yeah. again. People hang in there beyond the point where you think it's absurd to continue on a given course. But if they have a why, then the how is like the means whereby that shows up and, and, and shows you how to the, carry when forward. They select the why, they do it in their way. I've had lawyers close their office, and get a job in an orchestra playing a violin and not die. And you say, well, why was he a lawyer? Because his parents wanted a lawyer. Yes. So people lose their life pleasing others. And then when they reclaim their life, uh, this is from a poem. And uh, a doctor yelled at me, just because it rhymes doesn't make it true. W.H. Orton, a poem, Miss G, these lines. Childless women get it. This is a doctor talking to his wife about patients he examined in the office that day about cancer. Childless women get it, and men, when they retire, it's as if there had to be an outlet for their foiled creative fire. And the doctor yelled, because it rhymes doesn't make it true. But it is true. When, when you lose the meaning in your life, what's the point of living? And this is why we need to have meaning in our life 
if you're out there helping others in any way, um, then you feel good about yourself and your life, and it helps keep you and the people you're helping alive, too. I wanted to um, tell you just briefly a little story here, Dr. Bernie, about a gentleman I met for the first time three days ago. He was working on an electrical project for our monument sign at the church where Suzanne and I are members. Long story short, he's digging a ditch because they put in a photo cell so that we could have the sign illuminated automatically at sundown. And the sign wasn't working and the photo cell was the solution to the problem. So they sent a man out alone. <laughs> I thought I was getting a crew. I get one guy, right? One very hardworking guy. And he and I got to know each other a little bit. And it's apropos of what we're discussing right now. He said that at one point, he's recently turned 40, okay? The big 4-0. He said that in his 30s, he got to the point as a CPA, who also had investments to look after and property and drove a fancy sports car. He was in his 30s making $700,000 a year really working, essentially a 24-hour mentality around his career, $700,000 a year in his 30s, and he has a stroke. So he goes to his doctor, and he wants to know, you know how he can remain viable. How can he deal with all of this stress? And the doctor, in a plain-spoken way, told him, you need to find a new career, or you can keep doing this, and you will die. This stroke is your opportunity to make a change in your life. And the guy told me that he decided he was going to take that doctor's advice because it was to the point after his stroke, when he was returning to work, he would get to a stoplight and he'd look over and on a corner, somebody's digging a ditch. And he said he looked at that ditch digger. He's the guy with the fancy sports car, the 700 mm. grand a year income. And he's looking at the ditch digger. And he said, I looked at that man and I said, God, I wish I had his life. And he said he had to make the determination that simplicity was his salvation. And now that he works for electricians, he's digging the ditches and he understands how to lay down the line and do all that's needed. And he finds it a much less complicated existence as compared to the days when he was making all the money and he felt like his career owned him and his family. He yes. wasn't his own person. Yes, yeah, like what I said earlier about his Lord was money. And then he changes to a different Lord and how much better life gets. And we can find out that even if we're making only a fraction of what we made before, we're happier. So you right. can't measure it by, you can't index your happiness to money, in other words. Yeah, let me, I'll tell you, part of why who I am, and, and all of us, are our parents, all the violence you see now is due to how people were brought up. Uh, and they're getting revenge for the way they were treated as kids. But my parents, these three mottos they always say to live by. My, I had a terrible day at school today. God is redirecting you. Something good will come of this. Ma, don't you want to hear what happened? Don't you understand? God is redirecting. <laughs> My mother drove me crazy with that one. Ma, I don't know what to do. I have to make a decision. Do what makes you happy. Ma, I, I want help. Do what makes you happy. So she never gave me advice. She just gave me mottos to live by. 
And I grew up with that. And the last was my father's father died of tuberculosis, leaving six children and a wife, and I mean young children, uh, with no insurance. And one day I heard my father say, my father dying when I was 12 years old was one of the best things that happened to me. And I took him aside later. I said, what the hell are you talking about? I heard what you all went through. He said, yeah, but it taught me what's important about life. And so he was always helping people. And I've had to learn from him, too. You know, when people come to you and say, oh, can you help me? Can you loan me money? Can you this? Can you that? Uh, and then you never hear from them again. And no, I've never called a lawyer to sue them and get the money back. You know, because I have proof. I mean, they'll send me a letter and, and saying, you know, if you lend me this much money, I'll pay you back in 45 days. Uh, gotta, I just need it right now in my business. And then a year goes by and you've never heard from them. But my father taught me something, you know, to let go. I mean, why let them keep robbing you and stealing from your time and your life? Yeah, we were robbed once. When I say we, my wife and I were in a hotel. And when we came back from dinner, went into our room, the room was had been robbed of valuable items. But, and the door was open with the key. So, I mean, I knew it had to be, you know, somebody from the hotel who knew what was in the room. And I had seen this weird-looking guy in the hallway, and I wondered why would anybody stand in the hallway so I knew what he looked like. And it used to drive me nuts. And it was at this time of the year, too, right around Thanksgiving. And... Um, Every day, I wished I was back in the hallway. I'd grab that SOB and I'd turn him over to the police. And, and then I realized, he's still robbing you. Think how much of the day you are aggravated about this guy and that the police haven't caught him. And then, as we approached Christmas, a wonderful thought came in my head. Oh, if he sells all the things he stole from us, bought his children some wonderful gifts that he could never afford otherwise, I'd be so happy for his children. And from then on, I would smile every time I'd think of him. I wasn't mad at him anymore. He, look what we did for his children. Now, you could tell me that's unlikely. I don't care. He could have bought drugs. But when that crazy thought entered my head, I was smiling and a totally different response. So I love letting go of the people who robbed me and, you know, send them notes to make them smile. When I say that, I mean emails and other things uh, to let them know what's happening in my family and how I'm doing. And uh, if they want to come back and help or pay it, that's up to them. But I'm not, you know, as I say, going to hire a lawyer uh and waste time and money to get back something. Dr. Bernie, I know people have surgeries and get sick 12 months out of the year. When it happens in December and the holidays are upon us, it's after Thanksgiving, New Year's is coming up, Christmas is just around the corner. It, is there anything different that goes on in the hospital or in the surgeries around the holiday time that from the rest of the year? I mean, well, is it a happier time, a sadder time? You know, so how, does, how does it fit? happier. If you look at the holidays of all religions, 
the death rate after major holidays goes up. Watch the obituaries in your local newspaper. They will go down in the weeks before Christmas and up after it because people want to survive and last until Christmas. And I used to have fun in the hospital by saying this to patients. Look, if I get you home before Christmas, you buy me a present. If we can't get you out of the hospital until then, I buy you a present. So, you know, it was things to smile about and, and to act human about, not just about disease. And uh, so there's a different, yes, there's a different attitude around Christmas time in the hospital as well. Uh, we're nicer to people. Uh, the holiday means something. Um, and as I say, it, it, see, when you give people that goal, uh, then they survive to the holiday. And it's always good when you have family members, give them goals, you know, things to look forward to, uh, to stay alive for. What is the best part about reading the obituaries after the holidays? No, I I didn't mean that you had to read them. I mean, look at the number of them. That's that's my problem. The paper will be filled with obituaries in the week after Christmas because everybody has made it to the holiday. Now I can die. Well, the best part of that is you're the one reading them. <laughs> oh, I see what you mean. <laughs> I didn't get it. <laughs> I didn't either. That's, I don't know how to be a straight man. That's my problem. I was trying to set that up for you. <laughs> well, in the few minutes that we have left, Dr. Bernie, I did want to ask you, and this is out of pure curiosity, you were talking about the operating room. With all your decades of experience and all those years as a surgeon, would you know, based on the doctors around you, the various places that you perform, there were operating rooms within certain parameters the same from place to place, or was a lot of that mood dependent upon the individuals who formed a team to do the surgery? Well, the operating rooms were pretty much the same um, because people don't think of what color is the wall or anything else, or, you know, what music is playing. Um, but I found in, in other treatment areas where they had more freedom, like there are certain medical centers in Florida where they have a big, you know, glass wall so that while you're getting radiation, you're looking out at the outdoors. And we know, again, from studies, that if you put an outdoor scene on the wall in a hospital room versus an abstract painting, the people have less pain and go home sooner looking at the scene of nature. So if you're on the bottom floor in a hospital looking at a brick wall of another building or in your hotel or in your apartment house, get up in the air, get a higher floor and look out at the world and you'll feel better than the people on the bottom floor. So our environment, colors, that's why when I get into drawing, Colors mean something, too. Uh, they have meaning. You know, like the color black, obviously, uh, is not a good feeling, whereas yellow is energy, uh, red is a passion color, purple is spiritual. So if people draw their treatment in black versus in purple, uh, yeah, you know who's going to have more side effects. The, pur- the purple person is seeing it as a gift to them, uh, and they don't react to it. 
And people need to visualize what they want ahead of time to repair their body. If you picture yourself going to the hospital and having surgery, waking up fine and going home the next day, your body believes that. So you, you go and you do beautifully. And you can tell the blood to leave the area. I mean, I give a lot of instructions to people. And the doctors who operate on them, these are friends, you know, and I tell them this is what you need to visualize will say, wow, it was amazing. There was no bleeding. It was the operation was, you know, easy to perform and blah, 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 because they have changed it. I mean, it, it, in a sense, you can hypnotize your own body because, again, it believes what you are picturing and thinking. And athletes know this, too. You know, they visualize themselves doing well, and then their body responds to that, too, and they perform better. That was something that I used to love to read about, those sorts of stories, in a book that was a landmark. I'm sure it sold well over a million copies, maybe over two million back in the day. It was published in 1960 by what used to be called a plastic surgeon, a, a surgeon, a com cosmetic surgeon by the name of Maxwell Maltz, and the book was Psycho-Cybernetics. He came up with a systematic way of allowing the mind and body to work in harmony with the mind, particularly our imaginative capacity being like the driver of the bus and the body is the bus responding to the movements and the thoughts of the driver and i found that fascinating and experimented with it and what do you know it works i mean as i say what we visualize see i have an article on my website called deceiving people into health i lied to people all the time for their benefit see you could call it hypnotizing but especially i did a lot of children's surgery the kids believe me. I'm a doctor. They believe their parents. So I would tell the parents things like, get a bottle of vitamins, put a label on it, you know, whatever, anti-nausea, pain pill, whatever. And you give your kid a vitamin and they feel fine. And I used to use the alcohol sponge, you know, before you injected somebody or put an intravenous needle in. I'd say, this is a new sponge. You're really lucky. They just came up with this. It numbs your skin as well as cleans it. So you won't feel the needle. Thank you, Dr. Dr. Bernie, Bernie Siegel. We're, we're feeling the needle of time, so we've got to go. But happy holidays to you, sir. Always a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Bernie. And we'll do this again soon. Okay, Eminem. Eminem, <laughs> I love that. And coming up next, Suzanne. We have uh, Christine Upchurch, followed by the Susan Harmon Experience. And after that, American Road Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. Fantastic. We hope that your holidays are well underway and that you are enjoying them. We'll be back tomorrow, 10 a.m., right here at Seattle's home of Alternative Talk, AM 1150. Have a great weekend, everyone. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.